Uh, I don't mean to brag much, but my wife, Emma, is really good at giving gifts. Uh, I woke her up this morning at 5.30 and said, hey, can I uh, say you're good at giving gifts in the sermon? And she said, I guess. And then she went back to sleep. Something that she's so good about giving gifts is that she knows what I want before I know what I want. Uh, So there are things that she gets me that I had no idea I've wanted for years. It's been a desire that's buried deep inside of me, and she gets me this gift, and I get so excited. I'm like, oh my goodness, I never knew that I wanted this. Me, on the other hand, I'm terrible at giving gifts. And it's not that the gifts aren't good. It's that as soon as I buy them, I have to give them. I can't hold on to them after I buy them. And so even with Black Friday, uh, so it's kind of hard because her birthday is December 22nd, which is a couple days before Christmas. So all the gifts she gets all year is just on Christmas. So I just buy all these gifts for all the years. And so even this past week, I got her some stuff and I said, hey, I got you something. And she said, great, I can't wait to open it in three weeks. And I said, do you want to guess what it is? And she says, no, I don't. I want to open it on my birthday. And I said, I bet you can't guess the letter it starts with. She's like, I don't want it until my birthday. And I said, it starts with an M. She's like, I really don't want to know. I got you a massage. Thank you. So I'm terrible at this, which is kind of endearing, I like to imagine, uh, for my wife because I'm so bad at keeping secrets and, and not uh, get, waiting till the celebration to give her a gift. Uh, and I think this is something that's really true about me. I think that really this is something true about all of us is this anticipation about getting something is so hard for us to endure. Waiting to see joy on someone's face is so hard to wait for. But in the Advent season, Advent is four Sundays before Christmas. This is exactly what we're doing. We're waiting. We're anticipating. And in the Western church, I think that we do a great job of celebrating Christmas. But what happens is we have Thanksgiving, we're thankful, and then boom, December 1st, it's Christmas time. All that Christmas music starts happening, which is fine. I'm not criticizing. Uh, But as the church, we're celebrating Christmas before Advent. And Advent is so necessary, and I want to explain why. Advent literally means arrival. Before Christ comes, the church takes time to remember that we needed Christ to arrive. Before God comes flesh, God incarnate, we take time to remember that we needed God incarnate. We take time to remember what life was like before Christ was here. The season of Advent is such a vital time for us as the church to dig into our longings, to dig into our needs, and to ultimately look to Christ for that fulfillment. And so the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at a specific verse in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, for the next four weeks. And in this verse, there's four names given to Christ in this prophecy about him. There are four specific names. And each Sunday, we're going to look at those names, just one of those names at a time, and unpack how Christ fulfills those names. So this Sunday, we are going to be starting by looking at the term mighty God, mighty God. Now, I do want to give a little uh, 
background for what's happening in Isaiah at this time. So we're in Isaiah chapter 9. But what happened before Isaiah chapter 9? So zooming back to the time of David, uh, David was a great and godly king. He unified the 12 tribes of Israel. But since they had split into two different uh, places because of the sinfulness of the leaders. Now, King Ahaz was currently ruling, and he was kind of like a King Joffrey-style leader. He was not a a good leader. He was not a godly man. And King Ahaz, while he was ruling, even at the urging of Isaiah for King Ahaz to trust God, Ahaz actually decided to trust the Assyrians. The Assyrians were this local people with a lot of power, a lot of military prowess, And Isaiah urged King Ahaz to trust God instead of the Assyrians, and he chose to trust the Assyrians. And in turn, the Assyrians captured and oppressed the people. So that's where our text is now. So I want to invite you, you you're welcome to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 9, uh, or if it's on your smart device, or if you just want to listen, that's entirely appropriate as well. Just so we understand the full context, I want to read Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, verse 1 through verse 7. The gloom will be dispelled for those who are anxious. In earlier times, he humiliated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But now he brings honor to the way of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. You have enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors celebrate when they divide up the plunder. For their oppressive yoke and the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel of the oppressor uses on them. You have shattered as in the day of Midian's defeat. Indeed, every boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment dragged through blood is used as fuel for the fire. And this is our verse. For a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility and is called Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness. From this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord's heaven's armies will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we are able to study your word and dig into your truth Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us eager ears to hear what the Holy Spirit wants us to hear, to be convicted where we need to be convicted, and to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. We depend on you for guidance and for light, and we pray all this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Isaiah says one of the names of the Son, the child that will be born, is Mighty God. And the Hebrew for this is El Gavor. Now, El, not the letter El, E-L, is the form of Elohim, which means the one God. And Gavor means mighty. So it literally means the one God who is mighty. 
So this child that will be born will be a powerful, godlike figure meant to be our champion and our hero. And what Isaiah is saying is this. He's saying the promised champion gives us incentive to trust in God's power. The promised champion gives us incentive to trust in God's power. And for the next uh, amount of time, I don't want to say how much time, uh, the next time we'll be looking uh, at why power should actually terrify us and why this powerful champion instills trust. So we're going to look at why power should actually terrify us and why this powerful champion that's prophesied instills trust. So firstly, I want to look at the problem of power. Uh, This isn't going to be something that's going to be new uh, to us living in the Western culture, in post-Christian America, but power uh, we've seen abused multiple times over and over and over again uh, from people from afar and from many of us from people up close. But there is a problem of power. Uh, First of all, uh, power corrupts. Power corrupts. Once again, this is not going to be a surprise to you, Uh, but scientifically, uh, there is this place in our brain called the orbital frontal lobes, Uh, and these are the places in our brain that activate empathy. These are the places that activate empathy. Uh, And so when somebody, uh, when these lobes are disrupted, uh, people do not have empathy for others, there's disconnection and isolation, and this creates something that's called acquired sociopathy. Now, uh, studies have uh, been done that show that when power is introduced to somebody, that they actually start acting like somebody with acquired sociopathy. When power is introduced to somebody, they start acting as if their frontal lobes are disrupted and they no longer have empathy for others. There's a study done in 1998 called the Cookie Monster Study. Uh, Don't ask how I found it. I was looking up videos of Cookie Monster. And the Cookie Monster study uh, was something to use to study the effects of power on people. And so what these uh, studies did was they took a group of three people, they put them in a room, they randomly selected one person to be in charge. So they randomly selected one person to be the leader, and then they gave them an extensive menial task to do. (laughs) Sounds like a great study. And after about 30 minutes to an hour of doing this exhausting menial task, uh, they gave, uh, they brought in a plate of cookies. And this plate of cookies had the perfect amount of number of cookies on it. Uh, It had enough for everyone to have one, but not enough for everyone to have two. Uh, So they either gave four cookies to three people or they gave five cookies to three people. So there was enough for everyone to have one. And what the study found out was that the leader of the group was the one most likely to take the cookie, the extra cookie. The leader was the one most likely to take the extra cookie. Something was happening in their frontal lobe where they no longer empathized with other people. They thought they earned that extra cookie. But it wasn't just about taking the cookie. Further studies actually showed that the people who were taking the extra cookie, the people who were the leaders, were chewing with their mouth open, were smacking their lips, and literally crumbs were just going everywhere. They were eating vigorously without abandon or concern for what anybody thought of them. So this study done shows that leadership, now these weren't people who had predisposed personality traits, they weren't chosen for a specific reason, literally randomly uh, selected to be in charge. 
in the studies show over and over and over again that this person had an extra sense of entitlement, an extra sense of what they deserved. Something that this study shows us is that uh, it's not that bad people come into power, it's that power has the power to corrupt good people. Power has the power, excuse me, power has the capability to negatively affect anyone. And we've seen this throughout our history, and sad to say we've seen this in the church as well. There's this really great quote by Henry Nouwen, who was a priest, a 20th century priest. He's since passed away. But he said this about power and Christianity. One of the greatest ironies in the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. With this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, Indians were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. It seems easier to control people than to love people. It seems easier to own life than to love life. Throughout all of time, power has corrupted the people who have the greatest intentions. Power has the capability to corrupt. But also power without perfection is destructive. Power without perfection is destructive. I want to look back at this story of Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was in the line of David, so he was the current king. Uh, Now, he was the king of Judah starting at age 20, uh, and the Bible says that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's kind of easy to look back at these people and make assumptions about them, and we know that he was not a godly man, but for all we know, Ahaz could have been doing his best. He could have been trying as much as he could to be a good king. I think about If I was in that position where somebody was telling me, trust in God for what he will do, or trust in the Assyrians and their power, it would be a really hard decision. What we see is that power without perfection is destructive. Ahaz used his power to bring the Assyrians in and caused havoc and destruction in the people. Now, if you know me, you know that I love Lord of the Rings because I'm a hipster young white man. And in Lord of the Rings, there's this ring that's all-powerful. This is me holding the ring. There's this ring that's all-powerful, and they need to destroy the all-powerful ring. And Frodo has that task. And there are three separate occasions where he offers the ring to someone else. There are three separate occasions where he does this. 
Once to Gandalf, who's a wizard, once to Aragorn, who's the king, and once to Galadriel, who is an elf. All three of these characters are noble and good. And they've shown Frodo that they care about what is right. And in every single time when Frodo said, please take this ring from me, they refused. None of these good characters wanted the power of the ring because they knew that power without perfection is destructive. But also power is simply temporal. It will end. There is an end in sight. The Christmas trees are lovely and they will die. And you will drag the carcass to the street corner unless you bought a reusable tree. Power is temporal. We look at the reign of David. He was a good, godly man. He followed God. He united the 12 tribes. He made Israel a great nation. Now, where Israel was was kind of this ideal position between Africa, Asia, and Europe. So making a mighty nation there was not an easy task. Because of his godliness, David ushered in an era of peace and prosperity. But as we see, even in the line of David, that peace and that prosperity ended. So even if power is used for good, it will only last so long. Yesterday, Ohio State beat Michigan in the game, which I'm still learning the lingo, so... But there is no OSU team that is ever good enough to eternally defeat Michigan. Every single year, that game will be played over and over and over again. Power is temporal. So where does this leave us? At its worst, power corrupts and is destructive. And at its very best, when power is used for good, it is fleeting. Now, Isaiah 9-7, it gives us a picture of how the mighty king will use his power. We read that before. But in the life of Jesus, we get an even clearer picture of how God uses his power. Yes, power is terrifying, and power is unyieldy for us, but we get to see this picture of how God uses power in the person of Jesus. So firstly, we see that Jesus uses his power to be present. Jesus, the mighty champion, the hero, he uses his power to be present. In my natural state, I use my status uh, to gain power. So uh, my status in the society and culture, in my intellect, in my education, in the way my family looks and acts, I use my status to gain power, but Jesus uses his power to be present with us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus condescended from his heavenly home, from his high position, his high status, to be made in the likeness of men. 
in our lowly position. On one hand, Jesus is our champion, but in another hand, he is our our example. Jesus came to dwell with us, and that gives us the ability to approach God with Christ as our champion. But it also shows how we should be living in ministry in our city. We should be associating with our city. We should be present in our neighborhoods. We should be engaged with our coworkers. This is not a community of people who are hiding in our building. This is not a people who are hiding in a position, a perceived position that isn't even real of being a high people. We need to leave the safety of our homes, leave the safety of our communities, and to associate with the lowly. Jesus uses his power to be present, but also Jesus uses his power to be poor. Jesus uses his power to be poor. In my natural state, I use my wealth to gain power. How much money I have, how big my house is, how nice my car is. But Jesus, he uses his power to become poor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that you, by his poverty, could become rich. Jesus was wealthy in his heavenly home, and he condescended to this earth to live a life of a poor man. Now for us, that doesn't mean that poverty is the goal. It doesn't mean that we should be living in poverty. But we should have the attitude that everything that we have belongs to God. We should live in such a way that we are generous with all of ourselves, generous with everything that we have and everything that has been given to us. Jesus uses his power to be poor. Lastly, Jesus uses his power to be powerless. Jesus uses his power to be powerless. In my natural state, I use influence to gain power. But Jesus uses his power to be powerless. Celebrating with uh, Jay and Megan, who just had their baby, and it makes me think back to when my kids were born. There's nothing more powerless than a, a newborn baby. It's, it's cute and it's pathetic. Uh, there is just nothing that they can do. They don't understand a thing. Uh, their whole world has been flipped upside down. They don't know how to communicate What do babies even think? They don't speak English. There is so much confusion in the world of a baby, and Jesus chose to come as a baby. A being dependent on a mother. A being who had to learn how to walk, how to talk, to learn how to live. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this, Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus allowed this to happen to himself. When Jesus used his power to become powerless, he didn't forfeit his power. He acted in a submissive, obedient way. And Isaiah says that he was beaten and stricken, but he did not lash out. One of the things that I hate is injustice done against me. And Thanksgiving dinner tastes great, but you know what tastes even better is being right. (laughs) And there is so much pride and arrogance in my heart when I'm in an argument and I know that I'm right, and I'm just waiting to drop that bomb, and I'm just waiting for that person to make themselves look even more foolish. I love being right. Now, Jesus was in this position where he was right. Jesus was in a position where he had power, all the power of the universe. And he chose to take a posture of submission and to present himself as powerless. Jesus uses his power to be powerless. I said before what Isaiah was saying was that this promised champion gives us incentive to trust God's power. So how can I trust in God's power? Seeing power continually abused over and over again in our world, in our churches, in our families, even in our own hearts, we see power be abused. So how is this promise that a good and powerful God coming to earth, how is this actually good news? We see that through God's mighty champion, that is Christ, God uses his power to establish a kingdom founded on and promoted by justice and fairness for all eternity. See, Jesus used his power to become lowly so that we could be lifted up. Jesus used his power to become poor so that we could become wealthy. And Jesus used his power to become powerless so that we could become powerful in the Holy Spirit. This is our identity. Now, identity doesn't only shape the way we view ourselves, but it gives us direction for how we should be living. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to lift others up. We're able to bestow wealth on the poor and needy. We're able to live in the immeasurable power of of the Holy Spirit to the benefit of our city and to the glory of God's name. So this Advent season, friends, let us lean into our complete and utter need for a champion, for a hero, for God's representative, for a mighty God to come to us. Without him, we are left hopeless. But in him, we are powerful to live in his kingdom and to anticipate the complete fulfillment of his kingdom for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a mighty God. We thank you that you promised to come to us. We thank you that you did not leave us and abandon us 
in our lowliness, in our hopeless condition. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good enough to trust in your power. We thank you that you used your power to lift us up. You used your power to make us wealthy, and you used your power to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would live into this identity, eagerly anticipating the celebration of your coming this Christmas season, and even more so anticipating your return to establish your kingdom forever. We pray all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.